So today we're looking at Genesis chapter 18. It's a little bit longer than some of the chapters we've looked at, but quite an interesting chapter. Let's take a breath to ready ourselves to hear this bit of scripture. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest time of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing across from him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by and leave your servant. Let a little water be brought so that you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. And let me get a bit of food so that you may refresh yourselves since you have passed by your servant's home. After that, you may be on your way. All right, they replied. You may do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, take three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread. Then Abraham ran to the herd and chose a fine tender calf and gave it to his servant who quickly prepared it. Abraham then took some curds and milk along with the calf that had been prepared and placed the food before them. They ate while he was standing near them under a tree. Then they asked him, where is Sarah, your wife? He replied, there in the tent. One of them said, I will surely return to you when the season comes round again, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, not far behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and advancing in years. Sarah had long since passed menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, after I am worn out, will I have pleasure, especially when my husband is old too? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child when I am old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? I will return to you when the season comes round again, and Sarah will have a son. Then Sarah lied, saying, I did not laugh, because she was afraid. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked out over Sodom. Now, Abraham was walking with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, should I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? After all, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on the earth may receive blessing through him. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then the Lord will give to Abraham what he promised him. So the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so blatant that I must go down and see if they are as wicked as the outcry suggests. If not, I want to know. The two men turned and headed toward Sodom, but Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham approached and said, will you really sweep away the godly along with the wicked? What if there are 50 godly people in the city. Will you really wipe it out and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 godly people who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the godly with the wicked, treating the godly and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? 
So the Lord replied, If I find in the city of Sodom 50 godly people, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham asked, Since I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, although I'm but dust and ashes, what if there are five less than the 50 godly people? Will you destroy the whole city because five are lacking? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Abraham spoke to him again. What if 40 are found there? He replied, I will not do it for the sake of the 40. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry so that I may speak. What if 30 are found there? He replied, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, since I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 are found there? He replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Finally, Abraham said, May the Lord not be angry so that I may speak just once more. What if 10 are found there? And he replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. The Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. Then Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, let us be quiet before you and open our ears. Speak to us about your word. Lord, we recognize in this moment that there are as many unique circumstances and burdens as there are people in this room. There are people here recovering from surgery and illness, others facing financial challenges, others experiencing difficult relationships or loneliness, others battling with anxiety or depression. Lord, we recognize that some are in a really sweet season of life and are feeling just the favor. And in all of that, Lord, in all of the places that we come together before you, we ask that you would meet each of us right where we are and you would call us deeper into yourself. I ask that you would use the preaching of the word to accomplish just that by your spirit, not by my might, not by my cleverness or anything I've prepared, but by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life could be summarized really simply. It is a life of love. The Christian life is a life of love. In fact, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul used love as a way to summarize the whole law, all of the commands. Jesus says to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commands. Paul said, loving your neighbor as yourself summarizes the whole law. That's the whole picture. Our identity is found in our love for God. Our purpose is found in our love for our neighbor. 
And in different words, up to this point in the story, Abraham has received these two commands. The Lord appeared to him in chapter 17, which we looked at last week. Stephen preached a great sermon on that, wherever, wherever he is. I've lost him in the room. There he is. Hey, buddy. Um, and uh, gave him this command, walk before me and be blameless. The idea of walking with God takes us back to our original design. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. That is our love relationship with God, ongoing, communicative, the call to love him. And when Abram was first called out by God to leave his home and go to a new land, he was informed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And God reminds him of that in our chapter today. That's the call to love his neighbor. So this is Abram's life. Love God and love neighbor. Just like us. The question, of course, is always, what does that really mean? Like how? How do we do that? And I think Genesis 18 is a fantastic introductory course to loving God and loving neighbor. So let's look at loving God first. When it, when it comes to loving God, Genesis chapter 18 presents us with two options as God comes to us. We can welcome him with hospitality or we can hide from him. These are our two options. So Abraham welcomes God. I want to just focus on two things about his hospitality. One, something you may not notice immediately because it seems generic, is his location. Where is Abraham? Genesis doesn't give us a lot of, of features of the map. You know, we, we don't learn a lot about what they're seeing about the landscape. And yet, a couple times in this passage, what do we see? Abraham is at a tree. He's at the tree, the oak of Mamre. Don't, don't miss this. Because throughout Genesis, the tree is the symbol for dwelling inside of God's covenant promises. You may recall the Garden of Eden was built around two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord first appeared to Abraham at a tree in Genesis chapter 12. He establishes places that sort of clue our minds in, that we get to be with him in those places. Places where our love relationship grows. So that's where he is. He's at the tree. And the second thing is what he does. He's overwhelmingly hospitable. Now, if you've been following along, we've been going slowly through Genesis. Uh, so if, if, you know, if this is your first time dipping into Genesis in a while or maybe ever, you might not realize that this is strange how much detail we get for what Abraham does 
to welcome these three visitors. I mean, the, there's so many verbs that Abraham's doing. He gets really busy. He runs to them. He bows low. He begs them to stay. He offers them water to wash their feet and rest. He offers them food. He orders his wife, Sarah, to make bread. He runs to his flocks and chooses a, a fine and tender calf to be prepared. He brings them curds and milk. He places the food before them. He is bending over backwards, going above and beyond to be hospitable to them. So, this is, this is what we see about hospitality. And is this relevant to us? Are these things relevant to us? Um, we're not Abraham. We're not the, the father of the chosen people. Uh, not many, if any, of us, to my knowledge, have had a visible, physical interaction with God, like Abraham does, apparently. There's, there's God and you know, there's the Lord and two other people. Is it the Trinity? Is it the Lord and two angels? I, I don't know. But we haven't had that type of interaction. So do we have an opportunity to be hospitable to God in this way? Well, I think Jesus actually had a lot to say about this. Just a couple things, a couple ideas. In the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus teaches on prayer. And when he's speaking about prayer, he, he, it's interesting because prayer can become sort of a performance. And he says, when you pray, don't pray to impress people. Don't, don't pray to get attention. Don't, don't pray to be seen as a holy person who uses holy-sounding language. Instead, he says, whenever you pray, Go into your inner room. That's like whatever the most secret place in your space is. And pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, a day is coming when my people will worship me in spirit and in truth. That means he's waiting for us in the most secret places. There is a tree in your life. He's waiting to meet with you there. It may be an actual room in your home. It may be a park bench. It may be the pages of your journal. That space, that place. In Celtic spirituality, they call these thin places. Places where you sort of can connect with God more easily. You can set aside these places and time to treat God as an honored guest. The second idea that Jesus gives us is uh, found both in Matthew chapter 18 and in Matthew 25. Jesus has this repeated idea that there is a way that we do physically interact with him still today. And it's the people sitting all around you. I mean, it's a, a bizarre thought, but he says when... When two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'm there with you. It's remarkable. And later on in chapter 25, he tells the famous story of the, the sheep and the goats. And there's a lot to say about that story that I won't say now. But when he's talking about the sheep, that is the godly, the righteous, who, who have you know, lived in such a way to receive a reward from him. What does he tell them? He says, whatever you did for the least of my brothers... You did for me. Like, 
as we are hospitable to one another, especially in times of need, we're interacting with the Lord. So we can be hospitable to the Lord when he comes near, or we can hide. Consider Sarah for a minute. I want to argue that Sarah is hiding from God in this passage. Now, each time the Lord has appeared, he's appeared to Abram. Sarah's only mentioned once in the other conversations. She's never part of that. Um, so far, Abram is really the only one who speaks to the Lord. Like it, Sarah might not be hiding. She might not be physically hiding. You can come up with your own theories about that. You know, it's, it also is cultural custom in the ancient Near East that, um, that, you know, Sarah would not have been expected to welcome some, you know, noble guest into their home. The Abraham would be the sort of the face of the family and she would be part of the rest of the household that's, you know, trying to provide accommodations. So she could be forgiven for not being on scene, but there's a really big clue that there's more going on with Sarah, a couple actually. The big clue though, is the Lord's question. It seems like a simple question. Where is Sarah? It seems like such a simple question. It's the Lord, so he actually knows her coordinates, it turns out. Like, <laughs> let's just, Let's just assume he knows where she is. We know this is God, but the question is actually not a new question for God to ask. This question has come up a few times in Genesis already. When Eve and Adam ate the forbidden fruit, God comes walking in the garden. And what is the first thing he says? Where are you? Where are you? When, when Cain murders his brother Abel, God comes to Cain and says, where's Abel? Where's your brother? When Sarai and Abram, before you know this scene, take matters into their own hands and bring the Egyptian woman Hagar into the mix for her to become pregnant, for her to be the mother of the chosen people, then relationships go sour and Hagar flees into the wilderness. The angel of the Lord meets with Hagar and says, where have you come from? Where are you going? When the Lord asks where, he is asking so much more than like, where are you on the map? He is, he is indicating that he knows that you are caught up in something. And it's possible that what you're caught up in is like the person you least want poking around in what you're caught up in is the one asking, where are you at right now? Where are you on this? So where are you? It's, it's a very gracious question on the lips of the Almighty. I mean, when people are caught up in things, the, the judge of all the earth could come with very different questions. But asking where are you is actually an invitation to come out of hiding. 
And that's what the Lord does. He invites. He doesn't force us out of hiding. He invites us out. So why do we hide from God? I, I say we're caught up in something. What I really mean is shame in some form drives us into hiding. It's not that we always hide in the tent or in the bushes. My preferred way to hide is with self-justification. You know, to, to cover up the thing that I don't want to be known with things that I really do want to be known. Yours may be anger, it may be humor, it may be um, just shutting down. You may bury that shameful thing with a mountain of good deeds. That's a, a very common cycle of addiction. As soon as you fall off whatever wagon you're on, you try to balance the scales. Is it possible that Sarah is hiding in shame? Well, consider the last few chapters. Consider her storyline. In chapter 15, God tells Abram again that he'll have a son. Right away in chapter 16, Sarah comes up with this plan with Hagar, you know, her own solution. And that plan seems to work. You know, relationships go sour, but they patch things up. And now 13 years have passed. They have a teenager. They think he is, as far as they know, they, they thought he was the recipient of the promises until chapter 17. But then in chapter 17, God comes to Abram again, reconfirms the promise and says, by the way, this promise is through Sarah. Abram's like, well, what about Ishmael? No, no, no. Through Sarah. And then God leaves again. And the next time he shows up, Sarah knows. She knows her plan wasn't the way God was going to do it. She is exposed. She feels exposed. In this story, I don't think she ever comes out of the tent. I think she talks to him through the flaps. Behind the curtain. Divided from him. Whether or not she is physically hiding, again, you could make an argument maybe the other way. She is certainly emotionally hiding. Why did Sarah laugh? I didn't laugh. Well, yeah, you did. That's a form of hiding, you guys. I didn't, I didn't laugh. She's afraid. Her shame, though, does not impede the promise. Her incredulity does not impede the promise. In the end, what is really loving God? You know, Abram has been hospitable. They've welcomed him. But what is the big lesson here about loving God? Loving God is receiving the gifts that he gives to us with joy and putting them to use. He's there to announce again, I'm giving you guys a huge gift. He is the giver. We receive. Our worship is to receive his gifts and put them to use. You will be blessed, he said to Abraham, in order to bless the nations. Think of it like this. Doing things for God is not actually a way to love him. I think that probably is going to sound weird as you think about it. Doing things for God 
is not actually a way to love them. What I mean is that when we are doing things for God, it is usually an act of hiding in our shame, an act of distrust, an act of irreverent fear that God might snap and see me for the jerk that I really am. And so I can say, but look at what I did for you. But receiving and sharing the gifts of God, that's the love that he asks of us. He draws us in and he gives to us. And then we freely share what he's given. When he comes, he comes bearing gifts and we receive him with joy. And then we can go over the top with hospitality, receiving others as we would receive him. So that's lesson one. That's loving God. Let's look at lesson two in this passage, loving our neighbor. Now, I've been talking about the first half for a while now, and let me remind you, the second half is where God makes his plan known, known that he's going to go and, like, destroy two cities. And so you might be wondering, as I'm about to get into this, loving your neighbor? Like, come on, pastor, like, can we not just do some generic application and force it onto every passage? Uh, like, okay, okay, you could be forgiven for thinking that. <clears throat> this section is about God's plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't say it directly, but Abraham, Abraham knows that that's what he means. And that's what they start negotiating about. But I say this really is about loving our neighbors. Let me explain. Perhaps most obvious and not needing explanation is that Abraham is willing to be downright obnoxious with God. I mean, is it like, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's funny. Listen to him, 50, 45. It's like when you list something on Craigslist for 50 bucks and you get 20 people within half an hour who want to buy it. You're like, should have listed it for more, <laughs> you know? Like, hey, I know you're willing to buy it for 50, but how about 100? <laughs> so maybe this negotiation is meant to be funny. It's certainly audacious, but loving our neighbor, I said at the beginning, is about living in our purpose. Consider Abram's sense of purpose. Through him, God plans to bless all the nations of the world. In fact, God says, I'm going to let you in on my plan because of your purpose to bless the nations of the world. He has seen it a few times already. He, he went and rescued one of these towns. He read, after Sodom was kind of destroyed in battle, Abraham went and rescued them and rescued his nephew Lot who lives there. Peace and blessing come to the neighbors who come and sit under the tree with Abram. Abraham. I'm going to switch his names around all the time, sorry. But now, now his purpose is really put to the test. The God who told him that he would be the conduit of blessing to the nations appears ready to wipe some of them off the face of the earth. So what is Abraham going to do? Well, he's going to practice his duty. He's going to see what it's like. His love for neighbors, even distasteful neighbors, is put to the test. He's called to be a blessing 
That's the gift that he received. Now he's going to try to use it. So he goes to bat for them. For his wicked neighbors, we already know, the, the Bible's already told us they're like notoriously wicked. And if you realized how awful they were, you'd wonder, why? Why would he do that? Well, that brings us to the deeper lesson here about loving our neighbors. Justice. And by justice, I mean divine justice. God's justice is the key that unlocks our love for our neighbors. If I really believe that God is just, that he will punish wickedness, expose hypocrisy, right wrongs, then I know that I don't have to. In fact, even when the wickedness is aimed at me, I still don't need to worry about it. This is why Jesus could say, do not resist the evildoer. This is why Paul could say, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's shocking. Even when his followers are being attacked or abused, we're not supposed to. It's baffling, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The way of Jesus is utterly ridiculous. Unless... God is just. Unless he will make it all right in the end. When we trust divine justice, we get to see divine mercy. Just before this strange negotiation going down from 50 to 10, God thinks out loud for Abram. Hey, should we let Abraham in on what we're about to do? Yeah, I guess we should. He's going to be the father of the chosen people. You know, if any of Abraham's descendants happen to be hearing this story, maybe they should pay attention to this part. That's what God says out loud in this passage. So what does God want them to see? He wants them to see two things. He is truly, thoroughly just. I've heard how wicked they are, and I'm going to verify first. And he will not destroy on a whim or a rumor. That's the first thing. He's just. And the second thing is the reason for this long and repetitive negotiation. Why go down from 50 to 10? He will spare the wicked for the sake of the godly. God wants Abraham and his descendants to see this. I won't destroy for the sake of 10. What a message to the Israelites in the wilderness. Let's apply it present day. Every day when my kids are going off to school, we have this little motto that we repeat. And, you know, we say the first bit, they finish it. It's, it's kind of become like our family mission statement. Three verbs, be kind, be curious, be courageous. That's like what we want the right family to be, all right? Be kind, be curious, be courageous. They're doing better at it than me, usually. This, this is the posture I want to instill in my children. And when we say be courageous, what do we mean when we say that? We mean the type of fortitude that it takes to do the right thing, even if everyone else isn't. 
even if the right thing is being mocked by everyone else. God is having this conversation with Abraham, not for Abraham's sake. Abraham's prayers actually, they don't change anything. That's a little preview of the next story. God's going to do what he's going to do. This isn't prayer that moves the hand that moves the world. No bumper stickers from this passage. This is God's message to Abraham's descendants. Be the remnant. Be the few who stand for what is right. Remain true to me even if everyone else turns away. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, I don't know how many people live in Sodom and Gomorrah, but 10 is a small percentage of them. Hi, kids. Welcome back. You can find your parents. I'd spare this horribly corrupt place, God says, for the sake of just 10 of them. Did you notice in the passage that Abraham goes no further than 10? The story stops at 10. Abraham goes back to his tent. The Lord goes on to the town. But we can go further. Did you know that? We can go further, you guys. If Abraham had gone down to one, we know what God's answer would be. His answer would still be, I won't destroy them for the sake of one godly person. Because that is the other side of divine justice that allows us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Yes, the sins of the wicked will impact their families for three and four generations, but the the blessings of the righteous will go to a thousand generations. God is looking for every window, every opportunity, every tiny chance to restore. Even the wicked, he wants to restore. Divine justice is not bloodthirsty. This is not the the vigilante who loves to kill and beat people up and just happens to do it against bad people. All right, that's not God. Divine justice is looking for the faintest hint of the possibility to restore. So we can love God when we hospitably receive and use the gifts he gives, and we can love our neighbor when we trust divine justice and mercy. These become for followers of Jesus, the same thing. The great gift that God gave to you and to me is this. He has spared the wicked for the sake of the godly. Why can we go all the way down to one? Because that is what God did. He went down to one. While we were enemies... Christ died for the ungodly. That this is the story that is previewed. The negotiation does ultimately go down to one, but it is not Abraham pleading with God. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the heavenly places saying, what, what, what must we do to restore them all? What must we do to save them? And the Son says, take me. On the very night that he was betrayed, Jesus, gathering in the upper room with his disciples, took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, in other words, the one godly has died for all of the wicked. This is how we can love our neighbor. This is how we can welcome God. He has welcomed you to his table. He has prepared bread for you. Let's feast together and be hospitable to one another and worship. Pray with me. Father, thank you that again and again and again and again and again throughout Scripture, you show us what it looks like to love you. And you show us what it looks like to love one another. And we fail again and again and again and again. But you are so merciful. You have given yourself the godly to die for the wicked. Hallelujah. So Lord, thank you for welcoming us to your table. All of us who recognize ourselves as wicked, who need the godly to die for us, we will come and we will feast together. In Jesus' name, amen.